Good morning, church. Would you please turn this new year, 2024 of our Lord, to a new chapter in Luke, Luke chapter 6. We'll begin with the first five verses of Luke 6 this morning. That'll be the text that we're examining. Please remember as I read that these are the words of our God. Now it happened that on a Sabbath he was passing through some grain fields and his disciples were picking and eating the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered and said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priests alone, and gave it to his companions. And he was saying to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Thus far is the reading of the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's ask God's blessing on our time. Father, we come to you this morning on this Lord's Day. We celebrate our day of rest and remembering Christ's work for us. And Lord, we are a hungry people. We, we need the grain that comes only from your word. And so we pray that you would give it to us this morning and our hearts would be refreshed. We would be quickened in the areas where we need to be challenged and our sin exposed and have it removed by your gracious providing hands and that you would train us up into every way to the image of Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen. I wonder if your family got any games over Christmas. Our family got several. We got some card games. We got a party game to play when we have company over. And we got one of those really detailed board games. And I love board games in particular. I especially love the ones that are very involved. You know, they have lots of rules, uh, more than three rules. I don't particularly care for the games where it's the same old roll the dice, move your piece, bump that player back, no son, you may not punch your brother, (laughs) things like that. It does get a bit old. No, I prefer the games that take some time to set up, and sometimes you got to leave them set up because they take days to play through. The play, I believe, is richer. The story is more robust as you work through the game together, and I think there's a greater reward. Without trying to stereotype anyone in here, and I'm going to encourage you not to look at your neighbor right now, I'd guess that most families have one or two in their home that are those rule keepers. They got the umpire in their DNA. They're the ones zealous for the law when you're playing those board games. They want to make sure that everybody's playing right, do what they're supposed to do, stay inside the lines. And it's good because you can't play a game unless you have the rules out in front of you. But if you've played any of those extensive games, those ones that might take several days to play through, you know that there are times when the rules occasionally need interpretation, 
when it's not quite clear what the maker of the game was going for. The problem for those rule keepers in your home is that in their pursuit of play that is holy and without blemish, they tend to lose sight of what the game was actually made for, namely for everybody to have some fun together. You peer over your cards at them cracking the whip over this or that infraction while all of the joy in the room goes out the window. Well, that's the way that most people look at the Sabbath today. It's a rule. It's a commandment to be obeyed rather than a gift from our creator to tell his greater story and increase our joy. Christ the King, would you like to change that? In your life. In this morning's text, we're going to see the Pharisees commanding their convictions on others in verses 1 to 2, and to which Jesus will offer a convicting counterpoint in verses 3 and 4, and then he concludes by claiming absolute control in verse 5. Well, here in chapter 6, we come to now what is the fourth gridlock between the lawyers. And the law giver. Jesus, you remember, in the first instance, offered forgiveness for a man's sins. That was back in chapter 5, verse 20. And then he had another infraction when he had table fellowship with sinners in chapter 5, verse 29. And then there was that lack of fasting, apparent lack of fasting, by the disciples back in chapter 5, verse 33. Well, today... The elites balk over what they claim is an unarguable Sabbath violation. Spoiler alert, next week we will also have another Sabbath violation. We'll get to that soon enough. Let's look at verse 1 together. Now it happened that on a Sabbath he was passing through some grain fields, and his disciples were picking and eating heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. Luke doesn't give us a whole lot of scene detail. He just states that it is a Sabbath. However, if you have a King James version or a New King James version in front of you, you'll probably see an added phrase in that verse one. It is the second first Sabbath or also known as the feast of first fruits. This is a difference in manuscripts. And I talked about this a little bit Last week, the King James Version and the New King James Version follows the later Byzantine text tradition. It's a manuscript text tradition as things were transmitted through various manuscripts. One of those family trees of manuscripts was the Byzantine text, and that's what the King James and New King James Version follows. However, the older Alexandrian manuscripts, the Legacy Standard Bible, NASB, and ESV translations follow that family, they will lack that detail. Now, before I say anything more on that, I'd like to just quote the words of Bishop Ryle, who once said in this very instance on this verse, the difference between these two verses, happily, is one that affects no point of doctrine and may safely be left alone. We'll surely deal with manuscript, manuscript text traditions at another time, but I did want to touch on that for those of you who have a KJV or NKJV version in front of you so you know why there's a difference there. 
What all the manuscripts agree on is that it was a Saturday and that Jesus and his disciples were passing through a grain field. Jesus' disciples were picking and eating heads of grain and Luke's gospel alone of the synoptic gospels adds the information that they were rubbing them in their hands to remove the chaff from the wheat. To clear up an issue at the start, this was not stealing. That's not what this was. Deuteronomy 23, 25 permits a traveler to come into your neighbor's standing grain and you may pluck the heads of grain with your hand. You just may not use a sickle. As long as the gleaning wasn't on a large scale, using a tool, for example, then the edges of the field, which were supposed to be left unharvested anyway for those traveling sojourners, were fair game for any passerby. Now, as the elites witness the disgrace that they see in front of them, combat ensues. Verse 2, some of the Pharisees said, why do you, that's a plural you, why do you all, referring to the disciples, do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? The problem here was a perceived infraction of the fourth commandment. I want to take just a moment now to read from Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, the fourth commandment over us this morning. Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11 says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath day of Yahweh your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male or your female slave, or your cattle or your sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, the question at issue here was, does the plucking of a piece of wheat and rubbing off the chaff in one's hand constitute any work? Here's the rule keepers. They're coming in to make sure that everybody's living by the rules, playing the game fairly, and they want to know, does that constitute any work. And we'd all have to say, using our English language, from a very strict point of view, the answer is yes, it does constitute doing some work. But the next question is, why take such a strict approach to the fourth commandment? Because you could easily see how plucking a piece of Grain and rubbing it between your hands is not hardly working at all. Why so stringent rules when it comes to the fourth commandment? Now, there are a number of reasons. Most developed and changed significantly throughout the life of Judaism, beginning when the law was given to Moses all the way to our current context here in the Pharisees. But I could sum it up. In the opening scene of Joseph Stein's Fiddler on the Roof, top three greatest musicals of all time, by the way, if you haven't seen it, you should do that. Protagonist Tevia compares life for the Jews in the small city of Anatevka to a violinist creating music on the eve of a housetop. 
He says, trying to scratch out a pleasant, simple tune without breaking your neck. It isn't easy. You may ask, why do we stay up there if it's so dangerous? Because Anatevka is our home. And how do we keep our balance? That I can tell you in one word. Tradition. <laughs> Why take such a rigid approach to the Sabbath? Why were the Pharisees so constrictive on this issue? The answer, tradition. That's why. And the tradition that governed all Torah interpretation and application was known as the Mishnah. It's the oral tradition of the rabbis. These traditions were categorized by topic. They were considered to be authoritative on par with the Old Testament itself. And they were also exhaustive. The Mishnah is divided into five sections. I'll describe them briefly to you. The first is the Malacca. It's the 40 save 1. It listed 39 different activities that constituted work. We'll get to more on that in just a minute. The second section, called the Shavut, defined what constituted rest. So you've got a section that defines what work is. You've got a section that defines what rest is. The Mutzka dealt with things that were set apart and therefore should not be handled on the Sabbath, even though the touching of them was not actually considered working. They were just sacred things you shouldn't touch. The Hotza'ah, which detailed things that couldn't be moved on the Sabbath, was the fourth section. And then finally, the Tekum Shabbat, which limited the amount of movement you could make on a Saturday. Now, each of these verdicts, from the rabbis was drawn from what appeared to them to be a clear implication or example from the Bible. That doesn't mean that they were right or that they had the right to command their conclusions on everyone else. Far from it as we're about to find out. But don't assume that they were coming at the scriptures willy-nilly, forcing the Bible to say whatever it was that they wanted to. They were actually drawing from the text of scripture to get to their traditions. This isn't a group of trans-affirming, dog-blessing, climate-worshipping female Methodist ministers using that stupid Jesus they used to tell everyone that Jesus wasn't white, he was an Asian. Got me. <laughs> Didn't know that. At the convictional level, none of the prohibitions of the rabbis was in and of themselves sinful, provided that they remained personal, temporary, and non-salvific. As long as those things were there, they can have their little interpretation of the Bible that was on a convictional level. There are Christians today who feel convicted to not run on the Sabbath, or play, or even use electricity in their homes on a Sunday or Saturday if they're really strict. It's not wrong for people to do such things as long as it doesn't become a law for everyone else and it doesn't add to their justification merit. And also, it doesn't kill the fruit of the Spirit, which as Jeremy said in his pastoral prayer, is joy. It shouldn't do that. 
Now, it was the first section of the Mishnah, remember that Malacca section, that the Pharisees were using in accusing Jesus and his disciples of wrong here. I mentioned those 39 categories of work a moment ago. That might not sound too bad. You said it was exhaustive. I probably memorized 39 things that constituted work. But each of those 39 was subdivided, and each of those was elaborated on so that at the end of it, every area of life was covered. You knew that if you did anything on a Saturday, whether or not that would constitute work, or if it was going to be under the category of, I can still do that and rest. There was not one square inch in all of creation over which the tradition of these rabbis usurping the Lord did not ultimately claim the authority, mine. According to the theological gold standard of Torah interpretation, Jesus' disciples were, according to this Malacca section, reaping on the Sabbath, threshing on the Sabbath, winnowing on the Sabbath, and preparing food all on the Sabbath. That is a quadruple violation of the Sabbath. One commentator I read quipped, four distinct breaches of the Sabbath in one mouthful. There you have it. Now, before we get to our Lord's response, I want to say two things. Let me say two things here. First of all, when we come to issues like this, the big question should be, what was the Sabbath for in the first place? The rabbis, the elders, and the Pharisees made it absolutely clear what, to them, the Sabbath was not for, but what was it meant for? Exodus 28 through 11 makes it clear that it was primarily about rest. Take note of that. Rest, not rule-keeping. And also, not worship. Not at this point. The rest was meant to lead to worship, and it required keeping a rule. But weekly gathering to worship Yahweh wasn't normalized until the institution of the synagogues after the Babylonian exile. The New Testament writers picked that up and run with it. And in Hebrews 10.25, we have a new commandment, a new covenant commandment of Christ that we not forsake the assembling of ourselves together to worship. The Sabbath was meant for rest, and that meant more than just a rest of leisure. It was about faith in God. You can think of the manna Sabbath laws and how they underscore that. When God made the whole world in six days, and then he rested. And then he gave the people of Israel bread in six days, and then they were to rest. It was always about trusting God to provide. If he can build the whole universe in six days... Surely he can give us enough food in six days. We can trust him and by faith rest on the seventh. This gets to a soteriological and eschatological component of the Sabbath too. This type of rest finds its greatest fulfillment in the rest that only Christ can bring to the fallen sinner. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And again in Hebrews... We who have believed enter his rest, his Sabbath. The second question I think we need to ask 
Is all the legislating of the Pharisees, all the rule keeping, all of the minutiae down to the nth detail, doesn't that still amount to working to get rest? Every area of life was legislated. No doubt there, there were areas where they were not working and they're not resting. They, they dug so deeply into the finite points of the law, they neglected the weightier matters of the law. They created the upper echelon of hypocrisy. For a commandment on resting, this whole Malacca section sounds really wearisome. This last week, my wife and I went into our basement pantry to retrieve a bucket of wheat and make some fresh flour. Upon opening the pail, she found, unfortunately, more than just wheat. There were weevils, gnats, and other insects. No bueno. For some of you, that may be enough to just chuck the contents of said container and order another bag. But those bags aren't cheap. The alternative is to freeze the contaminated food, which kills the bugs, and then you can sift the contents so you can save your purchase. Now, before you judge us for what we decided to do in this instance, we have in the past chose to do both. We've thrown it away at times, and then we've tried sifting through it at other times. It is not wrong for us to try and save the contents of that bucket, but you can imagine scenarios where it could be wrong. Imagine if our kitchen caught fire, for example. Or perhaps our children were hosting an MMA cage match in the living room. And Tammy said something that she would never say. But if she said something like, but I've got to get the gnats out of this wheat, else we're out $60. Now that's about the level of hypocrisy that we're dealing with here. Jesus said, you blind guides who strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. You are missing the glorious blessing of Sabbath rest. That's what this is for. You're managing at the same time to lay a crushing burden on yourselves and others. J.C. Ryle rightly points out, it is evident from many expressions in the Gospels that these very men, the Pharisees, who pretended such strictness on one little point were more than lax and indifferent about other points of infinitely greater importance. While they stretched the commandment about the Sabbath beyond its true meaning, they openly trampled the Tenth Commandment. They were notorious for covetousness. Pharisees in Luke 16, 14 are said to be lovers of money. The issue is not that they had personal convictions on various areas of the law. Everybody has personal convictions when they read through the Bible. God gives them to us. The issue is not that they sought real-life application from the law. We're trying to do that here in our own context. The issue began when they accepted the damnable heresy of works righteousness, and then they strained that righteousness down to the nth detail and they missed the meaning of the Sabbath and legislated their injudiciousness on everyone else. And I ask you this morning, church, are you doing the same? You grew up in church. You heard about Jesus, the cross, the empty tomb. And you acknowledge faith in his name and work. But when it comes to right and wrong, you've never been wrong. 
When people come at you and tell you you've transgressed, you've always got an excused absence, a litany of reasons why you haven't, down to the microscopic level of law-abiding. Your heart is not open to correction. Your default answer is, no, I didn't do anything wrong, and in fact, look at all the things I did right in that situation. You regularly turn the tables on one who has called attention to your sin, and you attempt to show them how they're actually wrong instead. In reality, if you could see, perhaps you're neglecting your family, your home, your wife, your husband, your job, your marriage, your church, and even your own soul. Because you've got to be right. Now what I'm describing here is the root of the problem. But if you want to know if you're one of these people... I don't know that I tend towards that. Let me describe the fruit of what that looks like. Because the dead giveaway that you are somewhere in the throes of self-righteousness, that death spiral, is when you command your convictions on others. Members of this church must promise to never let a drop of alcohol into their systems, commanding convictions on others. We refuse to visit with that family because they won't love their neighbors and get vaccinated, commanding your convictions on others. You can't marry my daughter because you are a white man. How's that for a curveball? And why do you do what is not lawful according to the peerless standards of the rabbis on the Sabbath? Commanding your convictions on others. If you feel that this is something that perhaps you're prone to, let me give you three things to act on this morning. Number one, repentance. If you aren't repenting regularly, there's a problem in your life. By the power of the Spirit in us, we can combat and defeat sin and grow in greater and greater measures of holiness. And there will be periods of our life where we look back and we say, I had to repent more when I was a younger man than I do now. But have you ever been known as a repenter? Do people know you as someone who repents easily? Husbands, wives, ask your spouse when you get home today, am I known for repenting? Am I quick to repent when you confront me about something? Do I repent frequently when you haven't addressed me because the spirit got to me first? Kids, you can ask your parents the same thing. Mom, dad, am I known for repenting? Am I easily correctable? If your spouse can count the number of times that you've repented in your marriage, that's a problem. Number two, humility. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If nobody sees it quite like me, if that's the case, it's not because you're the only one that's right. So they do it differently than you. Well, let me ask a more important question, a more weightier matter. Are they walking faithfully with Jesus? Do they quickly confess when they are confronted with sin? Are they living a holy and emulatable life in Christ? Outside of your convictional differences with that other person or family, would you love for your children to walk as they walk? Have some humility and temper your fervor. Number three, discernment. I would encourage you to grow in discernment. We talked about this a little bit last week. 
All of Christian America knows that there's a Sabbath and that we should honor the Sabbath. But could they really tell you what the Sabbath is for? Could they tell you how to do it and maintain or grow in joy on the Sabbath day? Husbands, fathers, I'm encouraging you this morning, get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. If you're not going through the Proverbs with us, do that. And listen for something that you can act on in every chapter of Proverbs and then act on it. Do that thing. Avoid assumptions. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. Get more Bible reading through the course of a week so the Bible will naturally interpret the Bible. Be sensitive to others' convictions in your home, especially, men, your wife. But also remember that she doesn't get to rule everyone else with her convictions. Wives and sisters, daughters, you shouldn't neglect growing in your knowledge of God and theology either. If you don't give yourself to the word because, well, that's a man's job, that's my husband's job, that's a problem. But to you sisters who know the Bible well and have your own set of firmly held convictions, hear this. God leads women under the authority and wisdom of the men in their lives. Well, but he says we should do X, but I am convinced that we should do Y. I'm just not going to go along with him. I can't. I'm convicted differently. That's not what Paul said. No, a woman must receive quietly the instruction with entire submissiveness. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Sisters don't like to hear this, but the Bible reveals to us that women are more easily led astray, and therefore God uses not just the word in their lives, but their husband's or father's direction to help keep them from error. So if dad says we need to put baby on a schedule, moms, you should submit to that. If he says we're going to read this book together as a family, but you're not convinced that your kids are ready for it yet, trust God to lead through him instead of you and put on a happy face while you do it. Discernment by the way, also comes from outside input. Proverbs tells us that victory lies in a multitude of counselors, so don't hesitate to include others with a track record of wise living in growing in discernment this year. Brothers, God has given us so much in two and a half years at Christ the King. But if you remember back in the early church days in Acts, the Judaizer heresy was the first heresy to threaten the newly formed church in Acts 15.1. This manipulative and self-righteous mindset is still alive and well today, and it can and will threaten to reverse the right that God has done here with what is almost right, but entirely wrong. We have to put the spirit of pride and self-righteousness to death in each of us. Now let's look at Jesus' convicting counterpoint. The Pharisees asked Jesus a question. It was worded, though, if you notice, to communicate a warning. Hey, you better watch out because you're breaking the Sabbath law. Jesus rejoins them with this counter. Have you never read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread 
which is not lawful for any to eat except the priests alone. And he gave it to his companions. This is a contracted quotation of 1 Samuel 21, 1 to 7. And it also pulls some information from 1 Samuel 22, 9 to 10. David went to the house of God. At this time, it was the tabernacle, the tent. He both took and ate the consecrated bread in the tabernacle. These were the 12 loaves that were set out on the table in the holy place before the Lord. They were prepared weekly by the Levites, the sons of Aaron. Those were the only ones who were permitted partakers of the bread. That's from Leviticus 24, verses 5 to 9. And this is where Jesus' analogy gets really interesting. In verse 4, he states that David and his men did what was not lawful for any man to do. The Greek word here is existane. It's the word lawful in most translations. It's the exact same word that the Pharisees used in verse 2. For this comparison, Jesus uses their definition of what is lawful. He's assuming their point of view. Okay, so according to your lawful standard, let's look at a case in the Old Testament. Let's look at David. And tell me if your standard holds up against the test of Scripture itself. He turns the tables on them. And he proves that their position is unsustainable. He answers the fools according to their folly, revealing that they don't actually understand the law at all. They don't understand the Sabbath at all. I love his opening words. Have you never read? It's meant to have some force. It's meant to come across as a polite but very pointed insult. Sproul captures this in Christ's words in this way. He says, are you men so ignorant of the word of God that you don't know what it plainly teaches? You have mastered the traditions of men, but you obviously have not mastered the word of God. Now these men are trapped. Because if they hold their ground, they also convict the king, the greatest king of Israel, of going against the law of God. And by the way, that same king the Old Testament testifies, did what was right in the sight of Yahweh and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. 1 Kings 15 verse 5. By your definition, Pharisees, David has sinned. But not by God's definition. He didn't. They also can't maintain their position without accusing Abimelech, the priest, of winking at the law and giving away the bread that he knew good and well wasn't supposed to go to anybody else but the priests. And they can't deny that tradition held that David came into the tabernacle on a Sabbath day. That's another interesting element. 1 Samuel 21.6 states, So the priests gave him consecrated bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which was removed before Yahweh in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. Now, I cannot prove to you that David happened into the tabernacle on this day on a Sabbath. There's just not enough explicit evidence in the text to be able to defend that in the debate. But I don't actually have to defend that to you. The rabbis taught that it was the case that David went into the tabernacle on that day on a Sabbath. So whether or not it's true or not, the Pharisees standing there believed that it was true. This was the case in their reality. 
So according to their own belief, David ate forbidden food from the tabernacle and he also did it on a Sabbath day, compounding the same kinds of violations that they're accusing the disciples of. Now, before we get to Jesus' concluding words, I want to make one brief remark, just like last week. We have to be careful that we don't take Jesus' words here too far. There are not many Sabbatarians in this church, not in the strictest sense of the word anyway. And keeping in mind that Jesus lived on the bridge of the old covenant and the new, so he perfectly kept the old covenant law, and he showed us, Galatians 5.1, how to live gloriously free in the new covenant reality. We can't walk away from this passage. I'll say that again. We cannot walk away from this passage with the conclusion that Jesus just relaxed a commandment of God. He did not. Wherever you place the fourth commandment, whether it's ceremonial, civil, moral law, all three of the above... Jesus was not here saying that we can take scissors to the Sabbath commandment. He also wasn't saying that the Sabbath should be kept, but you can kind of pick when not to, like it's some sort of arbitrary thing. Now, you might want to say, well, it kind of looks arbitrary to me the way that he just said, yeah, but I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, so I get to say, this time it's okay. No, Jesus did not make up new rules as he went along. He didn't just feel right about this one and say, it's fine, guys, it's okay, it's not a big deal, this go-round. He would never have done what Americans do today, saying things like, Jesus would have been against abortions, except, of course, in the case of rape, incest, life of the mother, or when the daughter of an evangelical churchgoer in good standing gets pregnant. The law of God isn't Swiss cheese. There are no holes in it. But every law code, including Yahweh's, presupposes priority. Notice Jesus' words again in verse 3. Have you never read what David did when he was hungry? Mark adds another element to Christ's words. When he was in need and his companions... We're hungry. It's more than just, oh, we kind of want a snack. Mark even says they needed food. There was a necessity here. What's going on is the protection and preservation of the image of God in man. That's the law that supersedes the Sabbath law here, the higher law that's at stake. Jesus confirms this is the correct interpretation. Two verses later in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, he says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. There's more than one law at work on that Saturday. But one law can work while supporting and serving a higher law. This sort of thing happens all the time in our country. Traffic lights and speed limits are legal restrictions put in place to protect motorists from accidents. Any citizen caught breaking those laws can and often will be fined unless it's a life-threatening emergency. When someone's life is already in danger for a stroke, a heart attack example, the rules are to an extent superseded by greater rules. This is a glorious application of a biblical principle applied to our Western jurisprudence. 
the vestiges of Christianity still in our culture. The laws to protect and preserve the Imago Dei and the Sabbath law were both perfect laws. But which one takes priority in this case? Jesus is proving here that there is a higher law in force. His disciples, who likely have had moments where they haven't been able to rest, numerous crowds, nonstop ministering, they were doing all of this stuff. What if they didn't get to eat? Tammy and I were talking about our wedding just a few days ago and remembering that we had a big reception after the wedding, but there was so much going on with people coming up to say goodbye and congratulations, and it was beautiful. By the end of it, we looked at each other and we had these plates in front of us and we hadn't hardly touched our food. Could have been the case for the disciples. The higher law, they can nourish their hungry bodies on the Sabbath in this way and still remain guiltless. Now, a bigger question is, how do we apply this in our context? Earlier, I mentioned the heart of the Sabbath command was rest. Worship was implied, but it was in the new covenant that the weekly assembly was commanded. Though the Sabbath today is still, strictly speaking, the last day of the week, Saturday, most Christians view the Lord's Day, or Sunday, as their day of rest, a kind of Christian Sabbath. So does this same higher law need necessity apply to us in our new covenant context? And if so, to what extent? To avoid the ditch of the Pharisees, let me remind you what we say on a regular basis together as a church on Sunday mornings, what is the Sabbath for? Our catechism asks the question, how is the Sabbath in the new covenant to be sanctified? Answer, one day in seven should be especially devoted to corporate worship and other spiritual exercises that restore the soul's rest in God and zeal for his name and provide physical refreshment and fit one for a week of devoted service to Christ. Devoted to restore, to refresh, to fit all for our benefit so we can bring greater glory to God. In other words, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, there will be legitimate needs and necessities which excuse us from gathering together on any given Sunday. And I'm just going to give you a few examples. Applying this takes wisdom. There's not a list that we're going to create, a new Mishnah, a new Malacca of this is a dead giveaway every single time you get out here, but you don't get out here. It's not that black and white. This requires wisdom. But I'll try and give some broad categories to help you think through this. Number one, a serious medical or health need. Our congregation will likely always have congestion and runny noses. These do not constitute a serious need, in general, to stay home. Fevers, yes, that's a need to stay home. Contagions that could harm others, yes. We have a family staying home right now in part because of chicken pox to protect others. Vomiting and other sudden and violent expellations of the body. Yes, please stay home. For yourself and for your neighbor, please. If your wife had a baby the prior week, she should feel free to stay home and rest. There's a lot that goes on on those days. Number two, a providential hindrance. Your car breaks down on the way to church. You went out of town because there was a death in the family. 
You're shut in because of incapacity, called in for an emergency medical case. Now, there may be ways around some of those too. Shuttling shut-ins, for example, is one way the church has helped in those cases. But there will be times when there is no way to get to a gathering. And providential hindrances, there are allowances for not being here on a Sunday. What if we thought together, though, about what does not constitute a legitimate need or necessity? What if we challenge ourselves a little bit this morning? Number one, your lack of preparation does not constitute a legitimate need or necessity, a legitimate need to skip church. If your family stayed out late with friends the night before, or you stayed up to watch the game, you do not have a legitimate need to miss church the next day. It was poor planning on your part. Don't give yourself an out because the conversation was just too good, and I didn't want to be rude and stop them. Someone may counter by saying how poorly, you don't understand. My children are going to behave terrible the next day. They didn't get any sleep. They're going to be a distraction to others. Mom and dad are going to be up and out throughout the entire service. That would be a distraction. So it really would just be better for us to stay home the next day. No, it wouldn't. It would be easier. But brothers, every time you skip church for a lousy reason, you are catechizing your wife and your children and your kids in your own law priority. You're setting up your own law. It's not whether, but which. It's not whether we'll obey the law. It's which law we'll obey. Daddy's comfort comes first, before God and before the church priority. It's also poor planning for dad to fill up his schedule with man things throughout the week, which keep him from discipling his family to be ready for Sunday morning. Number two, convenience. This one's a killer. COVID was the initial reason people started meeting en masse, streaming those services online. But convenience was and is for some what has kept them there rather than returning to church. Convenience is the main excuse for dads who don't train their kids to sit still and quiet in church to miss. It's just more convenient. Family integration is hard. It has been rightly said, though, that anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. In other words, it's worth doing and failing over and over again rather than just saying, I'm, I'm not going to do it at all. That's cowardice. By the way, there's a place in the lake of fire for cowards. If you're staying home on a regular or even infrequent basis because you are not training your kids for church, you should feel ashamed. And then you should repent to God and then you should get up and get to work. Brothers, never skip the weekly worship for the sake of your own comfort. The last one I want to mention today is something I'll call family health. That one may seem a little strange. I just mentioned keeping feverish and regurgitating family members at home. But what I'm warning against here is an inordinate elevation of family priority. Let's just keep everybody together. We have a couple of sick ones Mom's got to stay home with a child. We'll just stay together and worship online. This mount may sound right. It's almost right, but ultimately it's not right. One or two sick ones is not a legitimate reason to miss a Sunday gathering for dad. 
I would say dad needs to take priority in coming to church. He's going to receive the nourishment from the word. He's going to go home and he's going to give the nourishment from that word to the rest of his family. Not saying it always has to be dad, but dad should be the priority if he's going to be there with the children that can. Paul didn't say that we should forsake the weekly meeting except to prioritize our family's health and unity. Your family's health and unity, brothers, are bound up in a father who prioritizes and does not forsake the weekly gathering unless it's absolutely necessary. Not only does the Bible say that's true, statistics back that up. Dads who are in church and their kids in with them, they continue in the faith. Massive numbers. Dads, this is your area to lead. Don't give in to the edemic temptation to be passive and cowardly. Don't be like the Israelites who had no faith in God to provide for them in his rest, which we're doing here this morning, resting in the word of God. Remember, it's the Pharisees who followed their own reasoning to the point that they ignored the clear command of God. They strained out gnats and ended up swallowing the camel. Lastly, perhaps one of the most shocking statements Jesus makes in all of the New Testament Let's look at him claiming control over the Sabbath in verse 5. And he was saying to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now Luke omits Mark's inclusion of the Sabbath being given for man's benefit. He is entirely focused on the Christology here. The importance of the supremacy of Christ over all things, even the Sabbath. I actually want to read the text in English to you, as it would appear in Greek, word for word. Lord is of the Sabbath, the Son of Man. Lord is of the Sabbath, the Son of Man. This is significant because the word kurios, or Lord, is in the emphatic position in the sentence. The placement of it in Greek at the start of the sentence stresses the authority of Jesus. This is now the second time in the gospel that Jesus has used the title Son of Man. And don't forget his previous illustration of King David, who understood and interpreted the law to allow for he and his men to eat the showbread in the holy place. Jesus is the Son of Man, Jesus is King, and Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He's a greater king than David who ascended to the Ancient of Days. We heard that in our reading this morning. It was read over us from Acts chapter 7. He is also the chief legal exegete of the Sabbath law. But what Jesus says here goes further than even all of that. Remember, the Sabbath wasn't a commandment given by Moses. Yes, it is in the law of Moses. It's in the Decalogue. But even the Decalogue states that the Sabbath didn't originate on Mount Sinai. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and everything that is in them. And he rested on the Sabbath day for that reason. The Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The Sabbath was a creation ordinance or a creation mandate. Because God wove rest into the very fabric of the universe. And since it was given at creation, it follows that the creator is the one who gave it. And who, mind you, is the Lord of all creation? None other than Yahweh God. Now, if you follow the logic Jesus is getting at here, 
this is huge, I can't overstate this, by allowing his disciples to eat this grain so that he can reveal to them that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus is here claiming to be the creator of heaven and earth. There have been people all over Twitter this last week saying, Jesus never said anything controversial. Are you kidding me? That's insane. (laughs) The reason I can exegete the Sabbath is because I was around when it was written. So, nobody say anything else. I'm going to let my disciples do this because I know for a fact it's allowed in the law. You see, I was speaking this law into existence when I created the world. In my introduction, I mentioned the board games with encyclopedic rules. Sometimes squabbles ensue over those rules. But just imagine for a moment that you gave your family one of those games for Christmas. They opened it up. They said, oh, this looks so cool. Dad, can you tell us about it? And you said, well, I'd be glad to. As a matter of fact, I invented that game. That'd be kind of cool. And it would settle disputes pretty quickly. Dad, can you tell us what this rule means? Oh, of course I can. I'd be glad to. When I wrote that, this is what I meant. And Dad would also be saying, hey, guys, remember what we're playing for. Remember why we're sitting down to play this game. I created this game for a purpose. Jesus, working in in conjunction with the oversight of his Father and the Holy Spirit, created all things and set them in order according to the counsel of his will for the glory of God. And then he rested. Not because he needed rest, but because the world would soon be longing for rest from the corruption of sin. And he knew that his greatest creation, mankind, was going to need rest. If we understand this rightly, if we give up nuancing rules to the exclusion of the purpose then the rule does what it was intended to do. Namely, it brings glory to the rule maker and joy to those of us who are wrapped up in the history of it. And that's the greatest need for some of you here this morning. To remember the rest that you have in Christ and quit trying to nuance all of your life towards righteousness. I'm not in charge. I'm not Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus gave his law for my good and for his glory. Repent of how you've ruined the game thus far with your curmudgeon spirit. Come back and sit down and play with the rest of us here, Christ the King. That's the purpose for which you were called. Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Rules matter to Jesus. They're not unimportant to him. But don't forget the purpose. Jesus says in the very next verse in John 15, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Glory be to the Father and to the Son, to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of rest. We thank you. For this day in which you have commanded us to come rest corporately together and even celebrate that rest that we have entered into, the eternal rest. We are those who live in the eighth day of creation.
that day that never ends. We've already had eternity break into our souls. And now we can rest. And we can enjoy all of your commandments and all of your rules and all of your statutes because they were meant to bring us joy. And they were meant to bring you the maximum amount of glory. And we want that, Lord. Please help there to be repentance in this room where it is necessary, where legalism has crept in, where convictions are being commanded on others, where others are trying to rule by those convictions. Lord, let us repent of these things and turn from them and turn to Jesus and find again that joy that comes only from his presence. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.